G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 7 Preview Edition. Uh, we are now, well, we're more than a third of the way through the season, given there are only 17 rounds. Still lots of stuff up in the air and uh, some big news on that front we're going to talk about shortly. As I say, a very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Fine? Cold this morning in Melbourne town. And, of course, um, thankfully, most people observing the... Stage three of lockdown, so the road's pretty empty and very foggy out there. So a very eerie feeling driving to our studios here. Of course, I'm based at uh, Southern FM Studio in Brighton and you're back at home base. So, yeah, really eerie out on the roads this morning, Roko. I can see out the back and, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, what have they used to call it, a, a pea super. Yeah. Um, a slightly indulgent note too. I just want to say thanks to everyone, our, our very loyal audience. Uh, we had a little bit of a, a milestone this week. We cracked the top 10 in the iTunes sports podcast. So um, uh, the numbers were particularly good over last week. So thank you, everyone. Really appreciate your support and uh, encouragement and suggestions and occasional advice and whatever. But um we're doing this for you guys, so uh, it's much appreciated, I can tell you. I'll tell you what else is much appreciated, Finey. A big, fat, juicy hamburger. They're still serving right the way through because, of course, you can go out to get some takeaway food. I think you need to be in a reasonable proximity to Andrew's Hamburgers. Uh, gee, they'll be checking. Don't worry. Don't go down in your car if you're not supposed to be where you are. But you can go out for food and what better reason to get out and really treat the family because especially if you've got a family, the lockdown part two can be pretty testing. So, you know, what better way to smooth the waves than with a truckload, a carload of those magnificent Andrews hamburgers and milkshakes and chips. Imagine coming home with all of that, Rowan. You'd you'd win some brownie points back at home base. Uh, Yeah, and then I'd be hopping straight on the treadmill, but not after I'd had a culinary feast. Absolutely. And uh, what about if I wanted my home renovated, Finey? What uh, what direction would you point me in there? Again, building and construction continues with all the necessary social distancing, and that is very much the case. Uh, as I spoke to Nick Spartels yesterday, and he's got a magnificent build going on in Albert Park as we speak. So it's West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. They are working right through as the law allows and with social distancing getting the job done. All right. Thanks to our wonderful sponsors. Uh, thank you to our wonderful audience. We've got a lot to talk about this morning. Some uh, big footy news. We're going to preview all nine games in round seven and another big year of nostalgia coming up in vinyl and video. Let's get cracking. 
on Footyology Newsfeed. All right, well, uh, what news segment would be complete without uh, giving you a latest uh, COVID update? That's the way of the world. Well, COVID, as it pertains to the AFL season, it's an ever-changing feast and uh, we're, I guess we're starting to become used to it. Uh, the AFL keep talking about the need for agility and flexibility. Well, they've certainly backed that up, Finey, because um, uh, they just keep making the announcements on the fixtures. And uh, the latest one, uh, we are in for a whirlwind of football uh, in a couple of weeks' time because we are going to see 33 AFL matches played across 19 consecutive uh, days. And that is the sequence that will start on Wednesday July 29th, just two days after the completion of round eight. We're going to see six clubs will be given buys during that period. Another 10 clubs will be given a buy before the end of that home and away season. Uh, but basically, uh, Queensland becomes pretty much the hub of AFL football. All 10 Victorian clubs will be based outside Victoria, eight of them in Queensland and two in WA for the remainder of it. Of course, Geelong and Collingwood, first cabs off the rank in that regard. Um, and it uh, looks like no football played in Victoria for the rest of the year fighting. So uh, what do you make of all that? There's a fair bit to digest there. Yeah, I think Gil was um, not a pains to point out, but he pointed out no Scheduled football in Victoria till the end of the home and away season. But there's no doubt that they're putting in place, as we speak, a final series that does not involve Victoria as well. And really, the AFL Players Association apparently um, sort of begrudgingly signed off on this. It's not something that I guess the players would jump at. A, the obligation to stay away from home now for an extended period till the end of the home and away series, and also uh, a real commitment to playing a lot of football in a short period of time. But the AFLPA understands that the end game here is to get a season completed, and everybody has signed on. So it's bring on football like we've never seen it before, Rowan. Surely this will explore the depth of club lists and and just how agile and versatile not only clubs can be but players can be and how quickly they can adjust mentally to the new normal yeah absolutely uh and one part of that too will be um as players are replaced uh on the list of available players they and their families what uh families they have that want to be with them uh, will go into quarantine. So, I mean, it's it's a massive logistical exercise, not just for the AFL, but the clubs involved. Um, and think about it too, you know, clubs operating with reduced staffs. Uh, I can't begin to imagine how, uh, how much work is on the plate of some of those people left working at AFL clubs in terms of arranging, you know, travel, transport, uh, and stuff like that. It is a logistical nightmare. Um, I, think, I, think that, s- I think that's going to fall to the AFL, all uh, that sort of logistics of... Because the magic number's 100, isn't it? So each, yeah. each club is allowed 100 personnel that includes coaches, players, uh, auxiliary staff, and 
players, partners and families, you know. So it's a real fine balancing act because when you start thinking about what that 100 will look like, maybe the clubs are going to tell players, partners, yes, children, no, and that will become problematic. It's going to be very interesting who makes the arc and who has to you know, sit it out in the flood. Yeah, and we're going to see, um, I talked about Geelong and Collingwood in Perth at the moment. They will be replaced in Perth by Hawthorne and Carlton. Yep. And uh, then they will in turn be replaced by two more teams. So, uh, I mean, look, it sounds like there's some routine with that at least. So, uh, I I guess we'll get our heads around that soon enough. But uh, it is just, yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable really. I mean, if we wound back the clock... Uh, you know, six months um, and said, this is what will be going on in mid-July. Um, you, you just wouldn't have believed it, really. It's uh, the, the world changes very quickly, doesn't it? Well, it changed incredibly quickly for the AFL, who were very nimble in handling the situation that was pres- presented to them because, of course, they understood that Victoria was being locked out from the rest of the country. But this outbreak in southwestern Sydney therefore presented a, a whole new set of problems and uh, challenges for the AFL because all of a sudden Sydney was out of bounds. They couldn't take the risk of including Sydney uh, wholeheartedly in the fixturing, knowing that there's a potential outbreak there. So it, it moves very quickly, as does the virus. All right, well, uh, doubtless uh, next week at this time we'll be having another discussion about a whole another uh, new set of possibilities and probabilities that have emerged. Uh, One thing, uh, more traditional football discussion, and we haven't had too many of these so far this season, but certainly came up this week and it was that age-old question, is the bump dead? And uh, that being thrown up, of course, in light of the suspensions to Dylan Sheil and Ben Long. Ben Long's case being referred directly to the tribunal, handed up with three weeks. Uh, Essendon, major setback for them being without Dylan Sheil for the next two weeks. Uh, A couple of other bumps, uh, Gary Rowan involved in one, Brad Ebert as well, them getting thrown up as well. But uh, I don't know. I mean, we ask this question every year, Fanny, so I'll ask you, is the bump dead? No. No, it's not dead. But it's bumper beware. I don't know what that is in Latin, but is it caveat emptor, buyer beware? So I'm sure it's something emptor or... Ca- no, caveat something, actually. I'm not quite sure. My, my, my Latin's poor, but so would be my advice to potential players who want to use the bump is just be absolutely certain that it doesn't strike your opponent on the head and then cross your fingers as to what effect it has on that person. You don't want to damage anybody in a, you know, out of decency and also you'll pay the penalty... Even more so. In the case of Ben Long, look, I was talking with Campbell Brown after the incident, and Campbell played the game rough and tough and sometimes outside the law, but he said, you know, when you get taught football as a youngster, you are told to protect the ball with your body. And it looked like Ben Long was doing that, but you can't do that at the expense of a player whose head is over the ball. So I think that was pretty clear cut. And St Kilda 
uh, immediately issued a statement saying they agreed with the three-week penalty. So there was no questions there. I think the more debatable one was Dylan Shield, especially given that the player who was bumped was able to play out the game. What was your take there, Ro? Uh, Look, I thought he might have been a little bit stiff to get two. I I reckon one was probably in order. Um, You know, again, it, it comes down to that thing about intent versus consequences, doesn't it? And, um, you know, sometimes I wonder whether that is the application of that philosophy is consistent enough either. Because as you say, I mean, no real damage done to the player impacted. Um, But then again, you've got to think about the intent and how malice-free or otherwise that was. It's not the sort of act you associate with Shield, really, is it? I mean, he's not, I'm not, having a go at him here, but he's not known as a, a hard man of the uh, of the caper, really. So, um, I, mean, I, you I, want... I think it shows that any player can be caught out in such an well, incident. That, well, that's the point I was going to make. I think these days, uh, um, as often as not, it's like a misjudgment of timing rather than, you know, an act of, of bastardry, you know, by a player. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I and agree. The, but, you know, the other thing about the bump being dead... You know, I think, no, it's not dead, but I think the risks of bumping a player who is in any way less than upright is too great, isn't it? I mean, if a guy's relatively upright, you've got a reasonable chance of connecting somewhere between the shoulder and the hip. If he's at all crouched over, given that that height may change from the time you start to watch into the bump to when it actually makes contact, um, there's a fair chance you're going to make some contact with the head. And, uh, you know, so one of us has got to say it, the head finally is sacrosanct. It is. So, um, you know, here's another element to it that I must say did occur to me, and it was when the Ben Long one happened, immediately there was this huge sort of cry from media commentators wanting to be, you know, tough and whatever, saying they've got to make an example of him that, do they ever say that with a player that is in the upper echelon of players? Uh, and I think this is a subconscious thing, but it's a, it's pretty easy to say, they've got to make an example of him when it's a, a lesser-known player who, if he gets four or five weeks or whatever, the, the world isn't going to turn upside down over as opposed to a Nat Fife or a Paddy Dangerfield or someone. I agree. And, and you know, it, it's also it's also a trap that... They say umpires fall into a bit where, let's say, Nat Fife and a lesser-known player is going for the ball and it's a sort of incident that begs a free kick one way or the other. It's always going to go Nat Fife's way because the umpire sort of subconsciously defers to the fact that Nat Fife's a, a star player. And, and I'm not picking on Nat Fife here. I'm just using any star player. And um, they know what they're doing and... and they understand the rules and the other guy's more likely to be the one that's infringing. So if two players are, are tussling and holding each other, the better player might get the better result. And likewise, there's, there's I'm not even saying, sometimes there's this sort of um, immediate past players, old boys club of upper upper echelon players. Because of course, if you're an immediate past player in the media, you would have been a, a pretty top footballer, correct? Re, yep. Rewalt, Brown... You know, and I guess, you know, it's not state football anymore, but it's enough all-Australian dinners and, 
you know, clinking glasses with the Nat Fifes and Gary Ablets and Paddy Dangerfields who are still going around. And they just loathe to dob them in for anything, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that happens even at a subconscious level. And uh, look, it's probably always been the case. But I, I, on that score alone, I, I sort of felt a bit sorry for Ben Long once the the uh, lynch mob sort of started gathering. I thought, uh, you're not long for this this world, yeah. uh, Ben, over but, the next few weeks. But you can imagine if it was Fife going in there, brilliant, brilliant play by Fife, shielding the ball and getting, a, you know, great, yeah. great. And then they'd realise that there was some collateral damage. Oh, you can't, you know, oh, but Sean Darcy's down there, Fife. They're on the same team, so it's ridiculous. So actually a good example. Um and you'd sort of, you'd hear a commentator say, oh, Sean D- Darcy's, what's happened there? And they'd have to go back to the replay. Oh, he's made contact with Fife. <laughs> you know, it's that one. Oh, he's had made contact with Fife's um, rear. Gee, that was unlucky for Darcy. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that gives us, uh, uh, there's a more traditional sort of uh, footy news story. Uh, the old uh, MRO and tribunal. Um, but I want to throw up another one, Fanny. Now, this is, strictly speaking, this isn't news, but it sort of became news. And I'm talking about uh, a terrific article. I think it first appeared last weekend on the ABC website by Russell Jackson, who, um, well, a bit of a shout-out to Russell. He's one of the best sports writers in the country, in my humble opinion, and he writes about anything very articulately, and he has done it. If you haven't read it, check it out. It's on the ABC website, a fantastic piece about TV coverage of football. And I know what you're thinking is, oh, yeah, the commentary, blah, 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 because that's what we always talk about. But he's talked about an element of it, which, funnily enough, we don't tend to talk about, and that is the technical coverage of the game, the positions in which the cameras are stationed, um, the amount of cutting between those shots that goes on. And after talking to a wide range of coaches and analysts and, and how they view the TV footage provided, um, he has mounted a very compelling case that the technical coverage is absolutely inadequate and, in fact, has barely changed over the past 40 to 50 years whilst the game itself has changed. Now, what are you talking about exactly, you ask? Well, here's a, here's a good example. One of the um, biggest implementations in footy in the last 15, 20 years has been zone defence, hasn't it? And uh, think back to Clarko's cluster, 2008, and the ability of defences to set up behind the ball and shift their position accordingly. The compacting of play in one half of the ground as the defence pushes up to him and opposition in their defensive 50, et cetera, et cetera. Those are moves that cannot be captured by the side-on traditional camera views that we always see. There is behind-the-goals vision available. Now, the clubs use it primarily as their source of, um, you know, tactical analysis. Uh, the, the, The TV networks have that footage, but only ever use it Um, to replay a goal, and even then, often not the right replays. And I was reading this, and, you know, there's there's a couple of great observations, but as a starting point, Fanny, what what did you think of the piece and what do you think of that example specifically? First of all, ditto on 
and I'm not familiar with much of Russell Jackson's work, but I am now familiar with what was almost a thesis on the um, lack of um, development, lack of, lack of um, innovation in covering the game camera-wise. And he used footage from a 1958 game that I'm quite familiar with at Punt Road between... Uh, used a shot of that and uh, talked about the examples set in 1958, a game between Richmond and St Kilda at Punt Road. And I must say, the coverage is quite similar. In fact, almost a little bit better because where the uh, cameras were positioned was the side on view, but it actually had a bit of height to it and was above the play and side on. Gave a slightly better take on where the players were upfield and downfield than you get today. Now, that long vision from behind the goals is occasionally used on uh, the Monday night, Tuesday night talk shows on football to um, make a point by generally ex-coaches who are familiar with its use or current uh, immediate past players. And they'll dissect a piece of play based on that long vision. Interestingly, uh, here's a couple of thoughts that came to my mind when I read the article. I thought, you know, soccer also hasn't changed in the way it's, it's covered, but then the game soccer has not changed anywhere near as much as Australian rules football. So, oh, and then just let me chip in there too. The other thing there, and similar to rugby league and basketball, whatever, they're played on universally similarly sized fields that are smaller and lend themselves to a up and back sort of um, style of coverage, don't they? They do, and they're not a three hundred and sixty degree game as Australian rules football is. Uh, obviously, rugby league and rugby are very linear, so that's how you cover the game. There's not much going on behind the play on the two lines in a game of rugby union, I wouldn't have thought. But the setup for Australian rules is the be-all and end-all. You know, I thought naively, probably wrongly, in fact, definitely wrongly, we're not sort of growing up and going to the football and as a... 15, 18, 20-year-old, I actually thought that it was semi-intentional because I have always, always understood that you get a much better view of a game of AFL than just good old Aussie rules by being at the game. I always knew that watching it on TV was a limited view. And I I, I sort of thought that that was done in concert with the then VFL to make sure that People went first and foremost to the game to enjoy the full experience. That the coverage of the game on TV was very much a secondary form of watching the game. And I've always believed that it is a secondary form. I no no longer believe it's done intentionally to keep crowds up because of the huge money for broadcast rights. But initially I thought that that was done in concert with the then VFL to make sure that people went to the game who wanted to see the game because you don't see the whole game on TV. Yeah, well, he talked to a lot of people for this story and including um, some analysts who had been stood down from clubs or, or were now operating solely off the TV footage and they were tearing their hair out because it's it suddenly, after having access to all these different angles, they suddenly realised... Wow, you know, the, the views are very limited. Now, I mentioned the down-the-ground shot. Here's some of the other things those people pointed out. One, for example, how teams set up at stoppages, they're absolutely crucial, but 
complete mystery when you watch on TV because the shot is always quite tight and you're only looking at those immediate, you know, half a dozen sort of players around the stoppage. Um, this is one that most fans, I think, grumble about rightly. Far too many lingering close-ups that where, particularly too, when a ball's going into attack near goal, and you've got a you've got some context of the guy about to pick up the ball and how, where the goals are and how how difficult a shot it's going to be, and all of a sudden they'll go in for the close-up and you lose that context. So the guy kicks the ball and you got no idea whether it's looking like a a kick that's on target or not. Um, another one, you know, the game slows down. Uh, the ball carrier is launching a, a transition. Um, the viewers will never see what options he's considering. Again, something you could easily see with a down-the-ground shot. And, um, you know, the, the, I guess the gaps in that knowledge of the, the home viewer um, could be filled in by the commentators if they were talking about those scenarios that are unfolding. But they tend not to do that. They just talk about what you yourself can see on the screen, thus defeating their intended role. And, so of, course, and of course, Rowan, the new yeah. the new dynamic is that they're only calling off the TV anyhow yes, because, yes. because of restrictions on COVID-19. Most of the commentators are based in Victoria and they're calling off the screen. And I'm fearful that for financial purposes and financial constraints and trying to win back money that's been lost this year, especially radio commentary, may for a long time or forever be done remotely off TV screens because it's a lot cheaper than sending people all around Australia. And I don't know why the name that strikes me as the person who was best at bringing you the entire ground and knowing that there was an advantage being at the game especially on radio, was Tim Lane. But I, I always felt that he gave, you know, alarm warnings, you know, mm. so-and-so's got the ball on the wing and always would tell you if somebody was free in the forward line or if there was a mismatch well outside yeah. the um, parameters of a screenshot. And I loved listening to him when he was really at his calling best on radio because he did understand that there was a whole ground to talk about. Yeah, no, very, very good point. And I, I reckon this problem, uh, what you're saying about the future, I think that is a very real concern. I've, I've had discussions with a couple of people sort of inside the tent, and I think that is a real possibility. Yep. And, the, uh, you know, the final observation that um, the fact that, you know, the game has changed so much over 40 years and, and the fundamentals of TV coverage have changed so little. And that thing about the close-ups now, I always, when, when that happens and I'm going mad, sort of saying, get pan back so I can see. Um, it always says to me, okay, well, well this is being directed or, or uh, set up initially by someone who is all about the symbolism and not the actual context, you know, because they think, oh, yeah, get close to everything, you know, hot, sweaty footballers banging heads and stuff. Yeah. But it's absolutely, it's like wrestling, you know, it's absolutely meaningless unless there's a context to it. So um, I really, really hope people in the TV industry have read this. Uh, uh, I, I fear not, but um, if they're really interested in improving technically their coverage, you'd hope they've read this and just gone bang, a lot, you know, a light bulb's gone off. Um, 
if you haven't read it, uh, look it up. It's uh, the headline on the story is "What If Broadcasters Are the Source of the AFL's Image Problem?" Fantastic piece by Russell Jackson on the ABC website. Rowan, can I just add one thing very quickly to that? Yeah. I, I believe you're spot on in the years to follow. We are going to have a lot of football called remotely. And we know that the radio market is a ultra competitive, is an ultra competitive one. And look, we ask ourselves as a generation of parents, how did we ever let chicken nuggets be a thing? because we let them be a thing and we made them commercially viable and we allowed them to pulp chickens into powder and then reconstitute them, bread them and sell them and feed them to our kids because we bought them. So I believe that there will be options in as soon as next year, hopefully, where a station or a network will say that we are bringing you radio coverage live from the ground. And if football fans want to get the best coverage, they need to listen to the broadcaster that broadcasts from the ground if that is a choice. So don't complain in 10 years if it's all called off TV if you didn't listen to the broadcaster that made the effort to go to the game when you had the opportunity. No, very good point. Very well said. All right, that's enough of news. Uh, Let's preview some games. On Footyology, previews with Punch. Round seven kicks off Thursday evening. Geelong playing Collingwood, the unlikely surrounds of Perth's Optus Stadium. This is a big game, finally, for a number of reasons. Yes, it may be two Victorian teams playing in WA, but this is almost what I'm looking forward to as much as anything. We are going to see 30,000 people at a game of football, the biggest crowd for any game of football since last year's grand final. And, uh, Look, well done, WA, for having, you know, had very strict um, regulations about COVID. Uh, They've been able to keep case numbers down and they have been able to allow crowds back at the footy. Socially distanced crowds, albeit, but at a 60,000 capacity stadium, still gives them the chance to have 30,000. And uh, they'll also get that for the derby, which we'll preview a bit later. But in purely football terms, um, this is a uh, uh, this has got real appeal, hasn't it? Collingwood um, back in a winning vein after a couple of pretty poor losses by them, and the Cats. Well, we were starting to um and ah about them a bit. They played some pretty dour, unattractive looking footy, finally. But that third quarter last week against Brisbane, seven goals, I think five of them coming in about thirty minutes. That really was a, a potent reminder of how damaging and uh, free scoring their best can be, the high-scoring high quarter of a season. Um, it was a fantastic effort, driven by uh, Paddy Dangerfield out of the middle. Tom Hawkins, really dangerous up forward. Look, in terms of personnel, uh, Jack Stephen coming back for them. Uh, Jordan Ngoi back for the Pies. So... The staff actors returning as well. Like really looking forward to this game. What do you make of it? Yeah, I'm very much unsure as to which way to go. I finally made my decision based on a, a little hunch. Had this game been played at the old Subiaco, you'd go for Geelong because that is was the ground that probably uh, was more similar to Cadinia Park than any others in that it was thinner than most and longer than most. But this ground, 
Optus Stadium is very much MCG-like. I'm going to go for Collingwood because I think that they've got a, a system in place that when up and running is... It, it's pretty slick. It, it, it works. And I, I haven't checked the weather forecast. It can certainly rain in Perth in July. Don't worry about that. But I'm just going to hope for some good weather tonight. And I really should have mm. checked the weather forecast. But I think in good weather, that system works pretty well. And I'm going to go for Collingwood. Well, I, I agonise similarly. I'm going for Geelong. And the ground's a factor for me. But differently to you. Um, Optus Stadium, the dimensions are, I'm pretty sure, as close to MCG dimensions as any other ground in the competition. Well, Geelong and Collingwood have played their last couple of dozen games at the MCG. And the Cats have won three of the last four. Didn't win the last one. That was the qualifying final in which they were up, uh, upset by the Pies. They did start favourite, however. I think recent Geelong Collingwood games have tended to be pretty dour sort of affairs, actually, where, where both... Yeah, they have, ca- haven't they? They both get cagey with each other rather than sort of back their positive best. Now, if that is to happen... I just tend to have my money on the Cats because I think they're very good defensively and I think Collingwood is a bit sus, if I can use that word, sus defensively if teams are able to slow down their movement forward with the ball. I think Geelong does that particularly well. And for that reason, nothing else, um, I'm going for the Cats by a couple of points. But when I talk about them having the better of recent contests, the last four games between these sides have been decided by 10 points, 7 points, 21 points and 11 points. So there's not much between them. It really is a toss of the coin. But you're going for the Pies. I am going for the Cats. I'll say this, Roland, that in tipping, I, I know that tipping is decided on who actually wins the game. That's how most tipsters' polls work, don't they? But I actually, when listening to a tipster, I, I give the thumbs up to the tipster who makes the most cogent argument and you know really presents a, a valid case. And I think you win that one. That's pretty well reasoned. Well done. Okay, thank you. Let's just hope I'll win the actual tip. Um, all right, let's go to Friday night and uh, Essendon taking on the Western Bulldogs. Of course, ordinarily you'd expect this game to be at Marvel Stadium. It isn't. It is at Metricon Stadium. Boy, is that getting some traffic on it of late and perhaps starting to reflect that too. 7.50 Friday evening. Now, this is another really intriguing game, Finey. Uh, We'd we'd been very bullish, pardon the pun, about the Bulldogs. Uh, Some great form they'd shown, but uh, not that impressive last week in that uh, what ended up being a very heavy defeat against Carlton. Essendon, um, almost the reverse. Essendon, I don't think, have been terribly impressive in terms of the style of footy they've played, but it's been effective. They're 4-1 and one with the game in hand. Four victories, no victory by any more than 15 points, but they've proved resilient. Um, they've been able to win a slog. Uh, they've been able to have the better final quarters. Um, so give them points for that because they're not a side that's been seen as being necessarily very 
uh, resilient over recent years. The issue with the Bombers, Finey, and you can't go past it really, is just the growing uh, unavailability list. Now, Dylan Sheil, of course, suspended. So he now joins Dyson Heppel, Jake Stringer, Paddy Ambrose, Joe Danner, of course, we've hardly seen for two years, and Connor McKenna, uh, a finger issue and unlikely to play as well. Now, the Bulldogs are a side with plenty of midfield flexibility and depth. Uh, they also generate pretty a, a great amount of run, and I think McKenna's important for that, for the Dons. So they lose that. They lose their number one, I think, midfielder in Shield. Heppel already out. Stringer is a goal kicker. They, they struggled to generate goals without him last weekend. I think as well as they're playing, um, unfortunately, lack of personnel is going to make the difference here. And for that reason, I'm tipping the Bulldogs. What say you? Yeah, I mean, see, that Dylan Shield suspension, he and McGrath have been just fantastic, haven't they? And they've been ably deputised with sort of promoted midfielders Snelling and Ham. It's been an unlikely successful combination, especially given that Andrew Phillips came into the team. So you couldn't have picked it at the start of the year. Maybe Phillips. I know that there were plenty of people putting his name forward even at the start of the season. No stringer up forward. McKernan really didn't fire last week, yet they found a way to win. Now, can they craft a victory again? It... I've got to say that in the end, they're going to have to be respected for the way they go about their business, aren't they? It's, And I know you look at these teams on paper and it screams Western Bulldogs, but I'm tipping the Bombers because so deceptive with the Bulldogs over the last two weeks, promising much and delivering little, that I have no qualms in selecting a side that very quietly has got the job done, and that includes a great victory over Collingwood. Uh, make no bones about it. That that will stand the test of season 2020, and I'll go for them again. There's certainly something a little bit uh, below the surface with Essendon, and especially in a season that tests one mentally, I reckon the Dons are absolutely up for the battle wherever it's played, and that makes them a good bet. All right. No, that's a, that's a brave tip, and uh, I commend you for it. Now, here is another very appetising game. We move on to Saturday, and the first on the menu Saturday, one forty-five at Giant Stadium. So, yes, a side is actually playing at home. Who'd have thought? GWS taking on Brisbane. Um, you lead the way on this one. Oh, gee, they've been hard to tip this year, GWS, haven't they? Sure, their fortunes have sort of seesawed a little bit with availability. And there have been times where, especially when Toby Green hasn't been playing, where you'd say that they're undermanned up forward and you could start to make a case against them. I think Toby Green being out coincided with, with Josh Kelly missing on one occasion. So that was a, a predictable loss. But beyond that, they are a very hard team to pick. Brisbane less so because they've been particularly good. But of course, Port Adelaide found a way through there. I think GWS, in a season where there are precious few home games being played, need to treat this like a little nugget of gold. And I think they will. I think they'll take advantage of being at home. 
they're going to be allowed to have a, a home crowd. So we'll start to get a little bit of parochial support come into it as well. And those factors, with two teams that have every right to believe that they're going to be in the top four, Brisbane making more of a fist of it at the moment. But this will certainly bring Brisbane back to the field, won't it, by the way? Uh, if they lose this game, then they're going to be in a logjam of teams on four wins. No question about it. So early gains will be met by mid-season losses. I'm going to predict GWS at home. Yeah, look, at even the, the form between these two sides doesn't give you that much more insight. Look, look they played twice last year. Uh, there was a clash in, in round 16 at this same venue, which Brisbane... Um, played ter- uh, terrifically well and ended up winning that game by 20 points. They then, of course, played in that memorable semi-final at the Gabba, which the Giants won. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, they've each won on the other, uh, on the opponent's ground. So very hard to split. Look, Brisbane would certainly want to maintain a, a stronger presence in attack that they managed in the second half of last week. I think there's some concerns about the way they let things slip so quickly still. You know, I think resilience perhaps is still one thing that they need to work on a bit. GWS, yeah, look, they've been hard to predict as well. I mean, Port, you know, that was a really good win by Port against the Giants. So they're they're prone to put in a bad one as well. But like you, I think at home, I think that looms as probably the biggest factor in this game. Perhaps more depth midfield. Two good midfield units, so looking forward to that. But I'm not. Go- I can't go past the Giants on that score either. So both of us going with GWS there. All right, next game on Saturday. It is the Twilight fixture, 4:35 p.m. And again, a team gets to play at home. It is the Swans. Although that uh, hasn't necessarily been a great. Who would who thought you would have said this? The Swans. Um, the SCG was absolutely a fortress for them. Well, it isn't very much anymore. In fact, if they lose this one, it'll be their 16th loss in the last three seasons at home. Amazing. Uh, they are up against Gold Coast. And unlike previous years, we're talking about Gold Coast now who are no pushover. And in fact, even when they were fighting, they won one of their most famous wins. The That's Suns, right, yes. Against the Swans at the SCG. Um Key men missing for both, but boy, personnel issues for the Swans. They can't get a lot worse than they are now. Of course, we keep talking every week about Franklin and Reed, but now Kennedy, Heaney, um, who's left for them, Finey? And Matt Rowell may not be there for the Suns, but uh, I just, this is going to be one of the least experienced, rawest, and most leaderless teams the Swans have ever fielded, I reckon. Yeah. I can't tip them. And their Ruckman have also, their Solon's Ruckman, Alira Lear better play, I'll tell you that much. Um, I'm not sure whether, is Callum Sinclair back? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, well, they, they, they may go with Papley in the Ruck because he's their leading marking <laughs> forward. And generally, generally, if you don't have a Ruckman, it's the marking forward that goes in the Ruck. So he'll only be outsized by two feet. But let me tell you, he'll go as well as the Swans Ruckman did last week because, as you pointed out in our summary of those games, five hit-outs for the afternoon. Never before. I don't think there's ever been less for a team, has there? 
Oh, surely not. Well, no, it, maybe, maybe when uh, uh, Lilliput played wherever David came from. Yeah, Lilliput versus the Goliath United. There's, yeah. <laughs> I, I would suggest that that is just a snapshot, a microcosm of the problems facing the Sydney Swans. Yeah, Gold Coast, we know two years in a row they've had nice starts that have amounted to nothing and left a grave worry on the you know, for the AFL and for the people running Gold Coast because they've run out seasons basically losing the last 15, 16 games. Or I think it's one win in the last 32 games of the last two seasons. Pretty parlous stuff, but I don't think that's going to be a problem on the weekend because they've just got too many... AFL-ready footballers for the Swans who will be clutching at straws. So, yep, Gold Coast for mine. All right, uh, just the one game Did on you go Saturday. for Gold Coast there? You, you made a good I case did, for yeah, them. yeah. Yeah, no, I'm going for Gold Coast. Um, not often I do that, but I am this week. Yep. Saturday evening, just the one game on Saturday night. It is Richmond North Melbourne, also at Metricon Stadium, 7.40pm. Well... Uh, what do you say about these two? Well, Richmond got a win, got a couple of wins under their belt now, uh, albeit the second of those in one of the most dismal games recent seasons have seen. And uh, I think the second lowest aggregate score of the AFL era, and that was their win over the Swans. Shocking conditions, admittedly, but uh, boy, it was unappetising footy. Uh, North Melbourne, not playing much appetising footy either. They have now lost four in a row after a pretty promising start to the season. And they've got some major issues as well on the injury front. Um, Guzentite, by the way, if that uh, came across. You're no, good? No, I, I reckon I was able to mute that, my friend. But I had, oh, a, okay, so... I had a big sneeze there, listeners. <laughs> a sorry, big I, sneeze. I shouldn't have drawn further attention to it. Um, so North, some personal issues, uh, look like probably getting Jack Zebel back this week. Still no Ben Cunnington though, that back injury, a real concern, real concerns for them up forward. Ben Brown really struggling for form. What about Richmond's personnel though? No Trent Cotchin, still no Shane Edwards or Basha Hawley, no Dion Prestia. Uh, Toby Nankervis and David Asprey, all unlikely. But we've seen the Tigers regularly win games, uh, missing some key personnel. It's becoming a bit of a calling card of theirs. And I think their form is certainly better than the Roos at the moment. Uh, I'm tipping they're going to make it three wins in a row against the Roos. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think knowledge of winning is going to be enough to get them over the line. <clears throat> Interestingly, Damien Hardwick, had a bit of a lash at John Longmire, blaming Longmire's tactics for the stalemate that was evident in last round's eight-point win over the Sydney Swans. I reckon Damien Hardwick just should have been happy taking the points and not really apportioned blame because, from my viewing, albeit, <laughs> this is a good one, Rowan, off TV, which doesn't give you the full picture, I thought it was uh, blame to be evenly shared. And I think that that knowledge of how to win a game of football is enough to get the four points against North Melbourne, who have shown in the last four weeks they actually know how to not win games of football. There is, <clears throat> there's been a couple of dashing comebacks that have amounted to nothing. My, most uh, 
famous of those against Hawthorne where they nearly stole the game, but they're just not putting themselves in the game because they're not scoring enough when they go forward. And that's a net result of no Larky and virtually no Brown. Zerha remains as the one dangerous forward, doesn't he? Otherwise, you're hoping mm. for goals from... Uh, look, Curtis Taylor has been good, hasn't he? Yes, yeah. That is one bright point, but you can't expect a kid just starting out to be a main source of goal. So you hope that Atley can grab a goal and Zebel, of course, when he plays, may be good for a goal or two. But no, none of that is reliable enough to get over the line against a team that knows more about winning than losing in Richmond. I'm with you, Tigers. All right, uh, that is Saturday. Let's talk about Sunday, the first Sunday game at 1.05 at the Gabba. It is between Carlton and Port Adelaide. And again, Fanny, I reckon this game's got plenty to recommend it as well. Carlton, um, it's interesting with the Blues. I mean, yeah, look, they're, they're looking really promising. Great win over the Bulldogs. But apart from that, the, the quality of the footy they're playing, like they have had been for a number of years, a pretty dour, scrappy side to watch. They now have some real run and gun and excitement about them when the ball goes forward. And I'm actually really enjoying watching that. It's as exciting as seeing them start to win a few games. But they're up against Port Adelaide, who also plays an attractive brand of footy in the context of how the modern game is played and had a terrific win last week over GWS. Uh, they've got a couple of enforced changes. Brad Ebert uh, suspended for one game. Cam Sutcliffe out with a hamstring. Uh, Xavier Dersma, however, looks like he should be ready to come back. Tom Rockliffe, ditto. So they're pretty handy inclusions for them. The Blues, well, they're uh, you know, some minor concerns over... Paddy Cripps and Mark Murphy, a bit sore after last week, but I think both expected to play. And if that is the case, there's a chance they could go in unchanged. Um, I wouldn't write the Blues off at all in, in this. I know Port's top of the ladder and, um, you know, everyone sort of, you know, uh, waxing lyrical about them. But I like the way the Blues are uh, shaping and... Um, they're really starting to get a bit of momentum and confidence up. And that forward set up, you know, you've got Betts, Mackay, who was good last week, Casbolt, McGovern, Jack Martin, Michael Gibbons. You know, there's a bit of firepower up there and certainly some think music. Um, I'm going to stick with Port, but in the end, only by a kick and only because they've got slightly more runs on the board. But I, I think in terms of tipping, this is an absolute danger game. And uh, wouldn't be surprised at all if the Blues got up. I'm pretty comfortable in tipping Port in this one. If Murphy and Cripps are a bit sore, they're playing against the wrong team because there is a real physical edge to the Port Adelaide midfield. Pal Pepper was great last week, adding possessions to plenty of grunt. We know that Ollie Wines has stepped back into football. Uh, they benefited Carlton last week from the Bulldogs' um, possession seeking midfield and that's something the Bulldogs need to address by the way uh, plenty of disposals but they sort of do it at the expense of locking down on their opposition and we've seen Patrick Cripps nullified a bit this season when the opponents put a bit of time into him Mark Murphy likewise and I just think that they're a pretty conscientious midfield now Port Adelaide I agree they both have a good running backline type added sort of um 
take on football and both of them uh, would like to score the new Magic 2020, which is 15-10. Remember the old 2020 was a great score? Yeah. I think it's 15-10 now and, you know, full credit to Carlton for having such a great game against the Bulldogs. But I think, I'm confident that Port Adelaide can pull it off just a little bit better than Carlton at this stage. But you know what? 12 months from now, if Carlton were playing the top team, I might sing a different sing from a different hymn book. All right. So we're both going for Port there. Second game on Sunday, back to Giant Stadium, 3.35. It is Hawthorne taking on Melbourne. Um, well, some yeah, different recent trajectories for these two, not in the directions you might expect. Hawthorne, pretty abysmal, to be perfectly honest, against Collingwood last week. Uh, lost all semblance of firepower up forward. Of course, uh, hamstring injury to John Patton hardly helped that, did it? But uh, really got done like a dinner in terms of getting hands to the footy even. Um, Melbourne, in contrast, is a pretty entertaining game. Melbourne's win over Gold Coast, and the Demons closed it out pretty well. Like uh, Christian Petrarca getting the job done there. He's having a, a really good season. Petrarca um, back, spending more time through the midfield as well as going forward and kicking goals, and they're getting value. You can see Melbourne's confidence just starting to build a bit. It's sort of like they needed a win or two just to remind themselves, hey, we actually can play footy. And I think the system's starting to come back for them. Hawthorne, got to wonder about their system. That possession game has worked pretty well for them over the years. But do they have the personnel capable of playing a game that relies on a pretty decent skill level by foot? I'm not convinced they do. I'm certainly not convinced they have midfield depth. However, I think uh, I, I'm, this is probably a Alistair Clarkson tip as much as a Hawthorne tip. It's very rare that Hawthorne put in a, a stinker and then put in another one. And I think uh, they have copped a, a caning this week. And even Alistair Clarkson, who's been a bit of a sacred cow in coaching terms, even he's copped criticism. I think they will respond uh, with a fair bit of fire and brimstone this week. Uh, unfortunately, Melbourne will be coming up against that. I don't think it'll be a smashing, but I think Hawthorne's going to show us something a bit closer to their best this week than they did last week, Farney. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> Pardon me. I think that um, it would really be uh, turning a blind eye to past history, immediate past history, anything under Alistair Clarkson, to think that there wasn't a reply, a response to that poor showing against Collingwood. You're right on the money. It'll be important at selection uh, team's name tonight to see if Luke Bruce can come up. Of course, he had a, a, a fracture to the jaw hairline and sometimes they can, if not heal pretty quickly, players with that injury can take their place back in the team pretty quickly. Just need to be a bit careful. But he's an important part of that forward line, isn't he? Because when you score three goals for the night, you need your best forwards playing. I feel as though Hawthorne's midfield was disappointing against Collingwood and would have really been, I think that would have been the starting point for the Alistair Clarkson revision and honesty session. And they're better than that, the Hawthorne midfield. So with that in mind, I think that they can be the starting point and the really the 
sort of decision maker in this game. It's not a deep midfield. I've made a point of that previously. But Melbourne's midfield's not damaging. And that's why sometimes they get the hands on the ball and they lose games of football. Good return from Sam Wiedemann last week. Do we trust him week in, week out? I bloody hope so, but not yet. So if he has a good game, Melbourne can well win. But history, again, you'd be turning a blind eye to it if you backed him in to have a, a major say on this game. I'm tipping the Hawks against the Dees. All right, so Hawthorne for both of them. Uh, for both of them. What, what does that even mean? For both of us. Uh, now, here's another appetising contest. It is, and uh, I'm going to get this right because uh, people that live in WA get very, very testy if you say, if you don't say Derby, but say Derby. So it is the WA Derby between Fremantle and West Coast. This is the 51st one, I believe, but uh, the Eagles have a pretty pronounced record in them, 31, oh, sorry, 52nd, I think, 31-20. The Eagles are up. Uh, pretty hard to see that trend changing, finally. Look, Frio, that's one of the best wins in their history, I think, last week, given they were six goals down against St Kilda, aside with its tail up, um, and they just in the, really... In the shortened version of the game. Yeah, exactly. Really dug deep and and found something. And And they lost um, two players, including the best player on the ground, by midway through the second quarter. Correct. It was a fantastic win. And that alone will mean they go into this with a fair bit of confidence. But I think the Eagles have genuine grounds of confidence too. I thought they were great against Sydney a couple of weeks ago. Not spectacular against Adelaide, but did enough to get the job done. I think Nick Matanui... Boy, is looming as a, a huge weapon in the ruck. You know, there have been times over the years I've wondered what all the hype was about, but lately, I, for whatever reason, I've started to see it more. Just the the hit-outs to advantage, the clearance work he does, that presence. Um, he is a, a real massive weapon for West Coast, and he is playing some seriously good footy. I think their forward setup starting to look a, a bit more together and, and connected, uh, and thus they look a, a little more potent. Um, but uh, we've seen Freo dig in. They're certainly, not to be, um, they're certainly not to be disregarded. They've won their last couple. I think this will be a close one. Um, but I can't not tip the Eagles in it. What do you think? Oh, I wish I could see the teams before I made the tip. Are Logan and Hogue or Hogan-Logan? Or Hogan and Logue. They're, they're, they're sort of interchangeable names. But I know it's Hogan and Logue. Well, you know, I... I yeah. Are they available? I, I, I wanted to make a gag about Schultz being lost without Hogan, but in, in actual fact, he was Schultz got, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Schultz did it right. <laughs> <laughs> he kicked the winning goal, didn't he, mate? He did. Um, I think Young, Hayden Young, he's probably going to miss, I think. Uh, Sean Darcy yeah, yeah. will be the interesting one. Um, Very important. Yeah. So there's a lot to be decided at the selection table, isn't there? Yeah. A Darcy, uh, well, they've got, I mean, if Darcy misses, Rory Lobb can ruck, but... Yeah, he did you, well in the ruck. Yeah. Oh, look, you know what? I mean, West Coast two wins were against clearly the two bottom two teams in the competition. One hasn't won a game and the other one's had the bottom fall out of it through injury. 
Yeah. So, how much stock do you put in those wins? I'll tell you what you do get out of those wins. You get Yo back in form, Kelly back in form. Uh, and that's probably invaluable against any opposition. doesn't matter who they sharpen their claws against. The fact is they land back in WA with some good form under their belt. So I'm going to stick with you and go for the West Coast Eagles, knowing that there is a Fremantle team that could take the field that would certainly raise my interest. But no, I'm going to regardless tip the Eagles. All right, West Coast for both of us there. And in a marathon round stretching across five days, get used to it, uh, round seven concludes on Monday evening. We've got Monday night football again. Hasn't necessarily been a massive success, but we've got no alternative now. So 7.10 Adelaide time, 7.40 Eastern Standard Time. Adelaide taking on St Kilda at Adelaide Oval. First game we've seen in the City of Churches since last year. Unfortunately, comes at the worst possible time for the Crows, staring a 0-7 scoreline in the face. Um, They just can't take a trick in terms of their footy or personnel. Captain Rory Sloan now set to miss probably a month at least with a, a broken thumb. Uh, where is that first win for the Crows going to come from? I just can't see it. Look, St Kilda, they'll be smarting after having thrown away that six-goal lead against the Dockers last week, and uh, they'll never get a better chance to notch up a win in Adelaide against a side that has often made a bit of a mess of them over there, Finey. You'd be looking forward to this one, I'd suggest. St Kilda's never won at Adelaide Oval. And they're never going to get a better chance of winning there than this one, are they? Adelaide does not have a forward line. I mean, uh, is, is Walker available for this game? Because actually, uh, as damning yeah. as I've been of Tex, I note with some trepidation his selection as he put it to St Kilda the last couple of times they've met, he's been the difference. Um Look, it's you don't follow the races much, do you? I don't. Okay, at Warrnambool, where they have the famous jumps races, there's a very tricky double called the Tozer Road Double, and it's two hurdles that come consecutively straight after each other. St Kilda's been given the Tozer Road Double in Adelaide, having to play Adelaide on their return home to the City of Churches, and then what I think is a completely unfair five-day break to take on Port Adelaide. Why that game's not on Sunday is beyond me, but we'll take that up next week. This has got this has got banana skin written all over it for St Kilda because as a St Kilda fan, I can tell you, we never win there. We've never won there. And we had trouble winning in Adelaide even before they moved there. Bar that famous final in 2004, it's been, uh, you know, a, a graveyard for St Kilda. So... Look, I've got a tip, St Kilda, because Adelaide just have no forward line. And they even their best efforts are met with, you know, easy resistance from opposition backline. So I'm going to tip the Saints. But let me tell you, heart in mouth, stuff for St Kilda fans. Yeah, I, I know where you're coming from. But, jeez, uh, anyone who's watched Adelaide at any stage this year, whew, they're a, a fair way off jagging a win, I would have thought. But you know when teams are naught and whatever, especially teams with some experienced personnel like Adelaide do, do have, even though, as you say, they're losing them as well, 
you know that they only need a sniff, especially now back at home with a crowd behind them, and it's going to become an irresistible force. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. They Give us some experienced umpires because they're going to get in on the party if Adelaide are up in the second half. <laughs> I'm scared. Uh, now you're playing the reverse psychology game. Thanks, Peter Landy. Um, all right. There are all nine games in round seven duly previewed. I reckon we change it up a bit now, Finey. Let's step back in time and have a listen to some great old music, watch uh, some old movies and a bit of TV as well. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, love this segment, although uh, Finey talked about being nervous about the Saints in Adelaide. Well, I'm always a bit nervous when Finey selects the year for this segment because uh, if it's out of my comfort zone, uh, that is, of course, a concern. What year have you bowled up this week, Finey? Out of your comfort zone. We know your comfort zone, 80s, late 90s and early 2000s, Mr. grunge but we're going back to 1973. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and no, I mixed feelings about this. I, I started to listen to music and, and watch plenty of TV and the odd movie, but um, yeah, it's, it took a, a bit of research, but I think I'll come up with stuff which hopefully people may approve of. I'll tell you what, though, we're going to change things today. Uh, your year, you lead the way. So give us your music selection for 1973. It's a bit of a double banger because things got confused in the 70s, simply for commercial reasons. So, the band, first of all, the band called The Suite started 1973 as The Suite and ended 1973 as Suite. They dropped the... Oh, they dropped the V, did they? I didn't even realise that. Yeah, in 1973. Made okay. more confusing by the fact that they released an album under the name Suite at the end of 1973 called The Suite. <laughs> okay. Um, that album featured Wigwam Bang, which is not a great song. Real glam rock lollipop stuff. That, but the really their underrated single, maybe as good as Ballroom Blitz, Blockbuster. And I really like Blockbuster for a. Oh yeah. For a, Does anyone know the way? There's got to be a way to Blockbuster. Now it's not an ad for a video store. It actually predated Blockbuster video stores. Now you've got to say you've got to be old enough to remember Blockbuster video, let alone Blockbuster the song. So there's an album fix. Not much else on that album. But it was also the year that they brought out the single in England, The <laughs> this is also confusing, The Ballroom Blitz, which was released oh, in I... Australia as Ballroom Blitz. All right, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, fine. You're going to have to do it. Yep. I'll do the shout-out, you do the answer back. Are you ready, Steve? Uh-huh. Andy? Yeah. Mick? I think he might have been uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, says okay. 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 All right, fellas. Let's go. Bum, 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 bum. So, One of the most famous intros to a song ever. Yeah. The man in the back said, Everyone attack. And they turn into a barroom blitz. And the girl in the corner said, yeah, I sure want to. Uh, turn it into a barroom blitz. Barroom blitz. <laughs> bar so, so it's, the, it's, it's, yeah, we'll stop singing. But 
This was a really 1973 song because it was released late in 1973 and it was based on an incident the band incurred or that occurred to the band early in 1973. They were playing a concert, I think, in Wolves in Birmingham and they got bottled by the crowd. Oh, really? Yeah, heavy drinking crowd, didn't like their glam rocking ways and took to pelting them with bottles. It must have been common because there actually was a term for it. So in response to the bottling they received in early 1973, they wrote this song, Ballroom Blitz, which was a worldwide hit. As I say, released in England as The Ballroom Blitz, but elsewhere as Ballroom Blitz. They had a real problem with the. Yeah. And just to (laughs) make things clear, they did not become the band The The. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you reckon they reacted when the the came around? <laughs> the. Well if, they got, well, if they got rid of the the, what would you have? You'd be the band formerly known as yeah, the, the, the. the They'd be the symbol, just a middle finger. Yeah. Well, remember when Prince did that? Prince became love symbol or something. Yeah, <laughs> I was watching an episode of The Simpsons today, the one where they had 25 greyhound pups. And, oh, they, and they ran out of names for, for their dogs. So one of their, the pups was called Prince and another one was called the pup formerly known as Prince. <laughs> yeah, although when, when Prince went through that stage, all his close friends just called him formally. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> my, my music. God, that was stupid. My music I selection. My, no, no, I mean, not me. What Prince did. My music selection for 73. Like I said, I liked it. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, this was a really good album. Now, you're going to be surprised here because I, I reckon, you know, if you're considerably younger than us, most of what you know from this guy is pretty schlocky or commercial and certainly not an artist I'd identify with normally. But Elton John, early in his career, did some pretty decent stuff, and he was prolific too. He and uh, songwriter Bernie Taupin collaborated on some really good songs. For me, this is easily the pick of Elton John's career, and a bloody good album, a double album, no less, so plenty on it. It is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. This was a massive hit, this album, and so many great songs off it, and some real rocky songs too. In fact, I, I love the start of this album, Funeral for a Friend, which is a very... Um, you know, sort of dirgy, ominous-sounding instrumental, but then it just bursts into a great rock number, Love Lies Bleeding, some fantastic uh, guitar in that. Um, and what are the other uh, big songs on this? Well, the other massive one, of course, uh, Candle in the Wind, uh, which would later about Marilyn Monroe, later be reprised after the tragic death of Princess Diana, title track goodbye yellow brick road was uh, another great song and uh, a very successful single and another real rocker probably the toughest sounding song elton john ever did saturday nights all right for fighting um other great tracks too another terrific track gray seal uh i always loved a great album this too in you know if you got lucky enough to have the old vinyl it's got the old fold out you know gatefold thing and you've got Great artwork for each song and um, terrific. I used to spend hours listening to this and just looking over the 
album artwork, but a really, really good album. If you haven't heard it, absolutely give it a listen because, uh, you know, if all you know of Elton John is, I don't know, what's the daggiest thing? I'm still standing or something. This is a mile, thankfully, a mile away from that. So give it a listen. It's a beauty. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, my album of 1973. All right, let's move on. I'm not letting you move on, Roko. Oh, sorry. What's your favourite album for artwork or for presentation? Oh, gee. Um, Question without. Yeah. Tough one to answer. Um, Well, you tell me yours and I'll keep thinking. I I never listened to this album because, you know, my sister's nine and ten years older than me. I was a mistake. And... I, they had great albums and I was fascinated and I loved getting into their albums mainly because of Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. Oh, yeah. It, it had windows, you know, it was it was thick. Must have been a yeah. double album, but it had windows in it and it opened up and there were things to do and it was good fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They uh, a lot of those albums got quite creative, didn't they? Oh, yeah. I'm really, it's so long since I've played albums, I'm really struggling to remember, I think um, I quite liked uh, "Not Fragile" by Beckman Turner Overdrive because yeah. it had sort of a contoured cover. Yeah. It was like a, a wooden box with like metal tools and stuff coming out the top of it. And but I, I, I might get I yeah. might get back to you on that one. And I was also fascinated. They had some albums that were not black vinyl; they were like red vinyl and blue. oh yeah, oh that that was like that was like the first time I. Had red licorice. <laughs> Blew my mind, Jerry. Blew yeah. my mind. Yeah, they were big. All right, All right what's let's your movie move on. of 1973? Okay, famous bit of music. Da 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 um, that was one of those movies that had so much hype about it before it came out, and one of the few movies to live up to the hype. They paired up Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid again, so anything with Newman and Redford was supposed to be mega brilliant. Throw in Robert Shaw, not the Tasmanian who went to Essendon around the same time. <laughs> it was around that time he got picked out. Well, they tried to they tried to get him, but he was injured again. Yeah, he did. He did his knee, and he couldn't do it. So they got the other Robert Shaw, who'd been, uh, well, he was about to get bitten in half by a shark, but that hadn't happened yet. So he was still holus bolus. And I'm not going to give away the movie, but it's a it's a good sort of rollicking romp with plenty of um, you know knock them down, fist fights and, and curves and turns and bits and bobs, but it all leads to the end, which, of course, is the title of the movie, The Sting, and it's beautifully played out. The movie was a box office rip-roaring success, broke all records for a short period of time before Jaws came and bit it on the ass. but it lived up to the hype. And you know the problem about movies made in the 70s? You look at them now, and unfortunately a lot of them were shot on in you know on sets in in big hollywood sets and they were sort of um in studio f- shoots and they don't stand the test of time because of course now all films are shot on location you, you don't create a set if you're trying to create san francisco so it loses a bit in translation in cinematography but the script stands tall and 
So does that theme music. So I like the sting. Been a long time since I saw it, but I, I do remember I liked it when I saw it. Um, all right, I'm going with now. I'm going to. This isn't a spoiler alert. Um, so, finally, if you haven't read it, people, and uh, you haven't subscribed to Patreon, get on and subscribe because then you can read this piece, the fourth instalment of Finey's top 50 movies of all time. And it contained a Woody Allen movie, Broadway, Danny Rose. Very good movie. Um, but Finey made the point uh, about the very uh, obvious demarcation between Woody Allen's pure comedy stuff and his sort of angst-ridden, neurotic New York Manhattan Jew uh, persona in a lot of his later work. We prefer Jewish persona. Jew persona is a bit stark. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Apologies. Um, <laughs> I know I know you don't have a racist bone in your body, or if you do, it's well and no, no, you, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. No, thanks for picking me up. I shouldn't have said that. Um, but, uh, or not but, I absolutely agree. It is a massive demarcation line and I fall very firmly in the camp that his earlier pure comic stuff is easily his most enjoyable. I love Woody Allen's plain comedy stuff and um, they're all good. I've got a top three. My number one is probably Bananas where he becomes the South American revolutionary. Uh, number two, probably Take the Money and Run, his first feature, uh, sort of one of the first mock mockumentaries where he's a failed bank robber. And this one comes in at number three, and it is Sleeper, set 200 years in the future, the US in the year 2173. And Woody has been cryogenically preserved and um, is sleeping away peacefully and is uh, awoken from his slumber by a couple of revolutionaries who are trying to bring down the evil US government. Um, and a hilarity ensues, basically. Just imagine Woody doing out-and-out comedy 200 years out of his time and discovering all the things that have changed in his absence. Like, for example, sex is an act completed in a machine not actually with another human being. There are giant vegetables and fruit uh, at which stage, um, at, at, at which one stage are chasing him around. Um, there is a giant breast which chases him yeah, around. Yeah, I'm so glad that, because I, I could never place the breast. Was it in was it in everything you wanted to know about sex or was it in sleeper? No, no, it's a giant no. bosom chasing him up down a hill, yeah. down a hill, isn't it? Yeah, it escapes from its bra and begins to chase him. He ends up, so he's he's awoken by revolutionaries and then they get caught and the only way he can escape then is to um, dress up as an electronic, a robotic butler who goes to work for Diane Keaton and he has to impersonate this robot and... Uh, of course, Diane Keaton doesn't like him and she's going to have his head replaced. <laughs> uh, but he manages to win her over and make her see the light of day and uh, they they topple, topple the government. And it's a really, really funny movie. Just a lot of visual gags. It's sort of like a slightly more intellectual version of Flying High, I'd suggest. But uh, the gags don't come quite at that rate. But it is genuinely funny. I defy anyone to watch this and not get at least a few laughs out of it. So 
Early Woody Allen is best Woody Allen for me. And Sleeper in the top three Woody Allen films, 1973, Woody Allen, Diane Keaton might have been one of the first or the first film in which she appeared with him. Of course, his leading ladies always ended up appearing in a whole string of films before something broke down and he jettisoned them for someone else. Yeah, some of his leading ladies also ended up in his life. Yes, well, I was going to say, Diane Keaton was jettisoned for Mia Farrow, who was jettisoned for her daughter. Soon, yeah. Uh, um, so, great film, Sleeper, 1973. All right, what's your footy memory? Have we done TV? No, we haven't. I think we probably should. Thanks for picking <laughs> me up on that. What's your TV memory? Okay, now, this little classic is a bit of a sleeper. When they talk about great English comedies, in fact, they did a survey at the BBC or Times Magazine or Times Newspaper TV magazine section did a survey and this was voted the seventh greatest British comedy series of all time but like uh, those ahead of it Faulty Towers and a couple of others short-lived only four seasons for Porridge in which Ronnie Barker plays the uh, irascible um, prison inmate uh, the re-offender the what's it called when you're a uh, Constant recidivist. The recidivist, as he is often referred to by the star of the show, in my opinion. Get to him in a moment. So he plays Fletcher, and his cellmate is a wide-eyed first-timer called Godber, played by Richard Beckinsale, who tragically died very young in his 20s, father of Kate Beckinsale, a, quite a, a willowy, good-looking actress. Um, the program is stolen, though, by... Uh, Mr. Mackay, a hard-nosed Scotsman who is a prison guard with a very broad Scottish accent, interestingly played by a Mr. Mackay, played by Fulton Mackay, and always just a beat late in getting Fletcher red-handed at his latest sort of um, scam or or little uh, illegality in the prison. It's a great comedy. Timing superb. The bit parts of various prisoners and other wardens and uh, the warden and other prison officers all well carried off. It's just a ripper and it's occasionally on TV. Uh, I see it sort of on the UK channel if you're fortunate enough to have uh, Foxtel and don't skip past it because it really is beautifully written, very well acted and each one's a little comedic play, a gem in and of itself. Porridge! Yeah, you know, it's a, a show that I I watched very, very infrequently and sort of regret not having watched it more. You might have just inspired me to seek it out. Is it on YouTube, do you know? I think it may be on YouTube. You will just love every minute that Mr. Mackay is in. You know, Mackay reminds me a bit of Mick Malthouse for some reason. I don't know why, but he has that <laughs> stern and he talks out the side of his mouth a lot with a very strong Scots accent. Unlike okay. Mick Malthouse, who does not have a Scots accent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. My TV offering is Local Fair, and it is a show that became very big indeed and ran for a good 10 years and produced one of our oh, icons of stage and uh, screen. And, I, in fact, I saw him interviewed the, just the other day on the ABC. I'm talking about Paul Hogan. And the Paul Hogan show, Finey. 
which introduced us to memorable characters like his offsider Strop, played by John Cornell, who of course would help pioneer World Series cricket. And we had the likes of uh, Leo Wanker, um, uh, George Fungus, the takeoff of George Negus, um, Delvin Delaney, of course, popped up on, on this. Uh, pop, perhaps not the right analogy there. What were some of his other characters? He had the, um, the Ockerish. Arthur Dunger. Arthur Dunger, that's what I was thinking of, yeah, the hopeless drunk. Non-PC, uh, Luigi the Great. na 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 Dancer Maria, yeah. dance. We're doing a lot of uh, musical attachments. Uh, the silence detector is playing because, oh dear. <laughs> okay, a little bit of a warning there. Thank you so much. Okay, carry on. We must be singing all right. Rowan, we got a little warning on our recording. What do you mean? What's the warning? Um, about playing songs. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we're, we're, nothing we've done surely could approximate any closeness to the original. So, uh, it, it, it suggested that we just might need to, um, uh, you know, pay our APRA rights if we're playing songs. But believe me, my singing of uh, Luigi the Great's Walk On music does not qualify for the five cents. Okay. Um, yeah. How much of the Paul Hogan show would get on air now? Do you think it wasn't all? Politically incorrect, was it? I think between sexist, politically incorrect, um, yeah, not a lot, mate. <laughs> I, don't okay. think, I don't think a whole heap of it, because the rest of it was probably done with a ciggy in his mouth. Yeah, 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 no, fair enough. All right, well, it was pretty massive for a good 10 years, and of course, Paul Hogan, after it finished, would go and do Crocodile Dundee and become an international uh, box office sensation. All right, now give us your footy memory. Okay, it's the 1973 Grand Final. It's funny, I love these footy memories because sometimes it's a whole season, you know, somebody kicking 100 goals. And for me, it's one moment in time, a moment that I listened to on radio. I remember distinctly listening to it. Um, Even at a young age, I didn't like Carlton winning. And, of course, the 1972 Grand Final between the same two teams was a... Not a slaughter job, but this huge scoring game in which Carlton won. It was a celebration of all things Carlton. So when they met again in 73... After they'd knocked off your team, no less. In 72? Correct. Yeah, well, Carlton beat St Kilda in the preliminary final. Correct, that's what I mean. Yeah, they beat them pretty easily. They kicked 6-8. No, they didn't. It was 16 points. Yeah, but they kicked 6-8 in the first quarter or something. You know, I mean, the the fix was in. They They were a high-scoring team. I think Robert, Robert Walls had a good preliminary final too, didn't he, from memory? Anywho, uh, in 1973, sensation. And you know, because you were there, only minutes into the game, Big Nick, who, of course, was a huge figure in the game, not only as a tap ruckman, but didn't he kick six or seven goals in the 72 grand final? He kicked six, yeah. Yeah, amazing effort. He lined up in the forward pocket, virtually a decoy full forward again, I reckon. And he got cleaned up with the world's greatest shirt front. Laurie Fowler met him front on and somehow sent Big Nick, as he was known, maybe not the tallest ruckman ever, but had plenty of size about him, 
big through the shoulders, solid as a Mallee bull, sent him spinning in midair. You've never seen anything like it. Brilliantly captured by photographers, brilliantly captured by the TV of the day. It was an entree to the madness that Neil Baum would provide later in the game. But this, for all Baum's bluster, and believe me, he hit a few. Don't worry about that. He got Vin Waite back for previous indiscretions, I believe. But this was the hit that made the game that won the flag for the Tigers. It was small man Laurie Fowler, tough, not known for playing at anything other than fair, would go on and have a good career at Melbourne, actually, after his time at Richmond. But on this day, he took out the biggest, meanest hombre on the opposition with a shirt front, now illegal, but back then, something to behold. And and you were there, I think... You you told well. I'll let you explain what happened immediately afterwards to Nichols, and therefore after that. Well, it was the first grand final I ever went to um, with my brother and father, and we had series tickets, so we had the same tickets for every match, and they were right behind the punt road in goals. We we're only about five rows back, um, and that was reasonably close to goal. So we were only we we're probably you know, 30 metres away from that incident. And I can still see it. Like when I, it's a weird thing, when I see it, a replay of it on TV or whatever, I see it as I saw it that day. Uh, ditto with Neil Baum collecting Jeff Southby in, in weight, which were even closer. But in the context of that game, it was absolutely massive. It was only three minutes in. Nichols actually picked himself up and kicked the goal, the first goal of a game. And everyone thought, oh, gee, you know, that's inspiring. I mean, look what Dermot Burton did in 1989. But Nichols, uh, I remember on the Sensational 70s, they're talking to, uh, I'm trying to remember who they're talking to about it, but they basic, oh, they are basically saying that um, Nichols didn't, he was so out of it, his communication with the coaching box, because he was captain coach. Yep. Uh, was really poor and um, you know they were sort of slow to make moves as a result and it really upset the balance of of things that day and uh, of course Richmond extracted their revenge for that embarrassing defeat the previous year and so Laurie Fowler yep wasn't a big name but he certainly had a big impact literally. Uh, Good call that one. I'm going for uh, it's not really a moment or a year It, it is a it's a thing, but um, it, it became a big influence on the game, although it's quite amusing in some ways. Some, sometimes when younger people see footage from either 1973 when this came in or 74, they go, what the hell is that? <laughs> and they're talking about a diamond painted on the ground. And it is the diamond which would in 1975 become the centre square. And, of course, at centre bounces, only four players from each side permitted him a square. Well, that the square began as a diamond. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the rationale for was. I, I know what it was. What was it? It was. It should have come in in 72, but things didn't move quickly enough. It was the 1971 grand final. And oh, yeah, that, that was the genesis of the push for it. Yeah, yeah and that became sort of the pin-up boy because it's actually a perfect way to sort of round out the program because of course the tv shot and the camera shot which doesn't show the whole ground for the first time showed all 36 players amassed around the center bounce 
Yeah. And they felt that something had to be done because both coaches decided to send everybody virtually on the ball in that second half. And yeah, but my question is why a diamond initially not a square? Um, <laughs> well, that's what I was asking. I know yeah. why they bought the. Scr- I know why they bought it. In. Sorry, I know the. I know the game that sort of and the image yeah. that precipitated the move. But a year, it took a year to come up with a diamond. I thought you were going to tell me why it was the diamond. That's what I, I'm aware of. Why they well, it well, in. I, I, I believe I, I. My feeling is from the time that they tried to um, use the sort of um, points of the diamond as the sort of positioning of the centre-half forward. They actually wanted that to be a positioning of the centre-half forward, hoping that all forwards fall in line, you know, either parallel to or behind the centre-half forward. So I think that was sort of the motivation, that there were placed the two centre-half forwards. It's an interesting discussion, though, isn't it? It's one of those things... Like if, yeah, people don't sort of talk about it, but yeah, it's began as a diamond and then obviously, and again, I don't remember how it happened, but obviously they got to the end of 1974 and people said, well, why don't we just turn it around and make it a square and then the ground won't look so stupid. Um, were, there some anyway. short, were, there, were there some shortcuts in on a diamond? Uh, what do you mean? Like a square, I know that I know that on the square, whatever point you are from the square, you're the equidistant to the centre. Oh, oh no, don't don't ask me. How, that. What, how's your trigonometry? Yeah, not great, but uh, better than the uh, people marking the grounds when they introduced the fifty metre arcs because the first couple of weeks of them they were painting them straight across the ground. <laughs> that, now that definitely doesn't pass the trigonometry <laughs> test. <laughs> Anyway, so if you have a look at any footage from 1973 or 74 in the VFL, you'll see a diamond. And uh, no, the groundkeepers weren't drunk. That's what they were instructed to do. Anyway, it became the square and proved a pretty um, significant and successful innovation in keeping numbers out of those crowded centre bounces. Now, you know, they, uh, they did toy with other shapes before the diamond. <laughs> this, is, this is a joke, isn't it? No. Oh, okay. Like what? A club, a heart, and a spade. Yeah, okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Imagine positioning yourself around a club. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. I knew that was coming, and I, I still <laughs> sort of walked through it. Allowed you to set it up anyway. Thank you. That's, um, that's being a good straight man. Oh, no, I don't like being a straight man, and I've got no intention of doing it any longer. In fact, I've got are no you co- are you co- Are you coming out? Shut up. Uh, that is the end of this podcast and probably not a moment too soon. Uh, thanks to your company, everyone. Quick shout out to our wonderful sponsors, Finey. Love burgers. We all do. Why not the best burger? Andrew's Hamburger, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And I've got a terrible feeling that in our pre-match promo, I didn't say the address for the first time ever. 144 oh, Bridport Street, Albert Park. Do not ever forget that address. I reckon regular listeners uh, know it. That sounded very like the Eric Planet scene. I was trying one. to do it. The, <laughs> the most effective advertisement of a street number in the history of television advertising in Melbourne. And, of course, West Point Properties, they're located for best builds in a southeastern suburbs. Nick Spartel's your main man and a happy man because he's a Carlton man. Well, what's their address? 
No address. Just contact West Point. No properties. address. Oh, okay. They're like a hologram, are they? You can't actually. Um, all yeah. right. No, the wonder. In fact, I reckon they could build you a hologram. That's how good they are. There you go. Um, thanks to West Point Properties. Thanks to Andrew's Hamburgers. Thanks to you, our listeners. Um, and thank you for listening in increasing numbers. Tell your friends, tell your family. Uh, more importantly, jump on our Patreon page and uh, sling us some cash if you like what we do because um, we've we've got some big plans ahead for footyology. I'm being serious now and I will be announcing those over the next few weeks. So stay tuned. Really exciting stuff. Ooh. But we love, uh, we love your loyalty. We love doing this for you. So thanks once again. Uh, have a good weekend of footy, everyone. Hope your team gets a win. And we will see you on Sunday evening for not a complete, but an almost complete review of Round 7. We'll see you there.